starting my series on Harry Haywood's Black Bolshevik. This is the autobiography of Haywood's life from his childhood to his time in the military, to him joining the Communist Party and beyond. Uh, before we get into the main text, I just want to say a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, first off, this is the autobiography of a black communist, and I am very much white, just to get that out of the way. More importantly, there will be words used in this text that in everyday conversation I would never say, let alone in any conversation. I want to try and stay as true to the text as is written as possible, but even with this rule, certain words like the n-word will appear, and in th those cases, I will be censoring them, because I have no right to say these words, even for the purpose of this podcast and staying true to the text. Well, with that out of the way, let's get into the prologue and chapter one of Black Bolshevik. On July 28, 1919, I literally stepped into a battle that was to last the rest of my life. Exactly three months after mustering out of the army, I found myself in the midst of one of the bloodiest race riots in U.S. history. It was certainly a most dramatic return to the realities of American democracy. It had come to me then that I had been fighting the wrong war. The Germans weren't the enemy. The enemy was right here at home. These ideas weren't, had been developing ever since I'd landed home in April, and a lot of other black veterans were having the same thoughts. I had a job at a, as a waiter on the Michigan Central Railroad at the time. In July, I was working the Wolverine, the crack Michigan Central train between Chicago and New York. We would serve lunch and dinner on the run out of Chicago to St. Thomas, Canada, where the dining car was cut off the train. The next morning, our cars would be attached to the Chicago-bound train, and we would serve breakfast and lunch into Chicago. On July 27th, the Wolverine left out on a regular run to St. Thomas passing through Detroit. We heard news that a race riot had broken out in Chicago. The situation had been tense for some time. Several members of the crew, all of them black, had brought revolvers and ammunition the previous week, one on a special, one on a special to Battle Creek, Michigan. Thus, when we returned to Chicago at about 2 p.m. the next day, July 28th, we were apprehensive about what awaited us. The whole dining car crew, six waiters and four cooks, got off the 12th Street station in Chicago. Usually we would stay on the car while it while stay on the car while it backed out to the yards, but the station seemed a better route now. We were all tense as we passed through the station on the way to the elevated to the elevated which would take us to the south side and home. Suddenly a white train man accosted us. "Hey, you guys, go you guys going out to south side?" "Yeah, so what?" I said, immediately on the alert, thinking he might start something. If I were you, I wouldn't go by the avenue. He meant Michigan Avenue, which is right in front of the station. Why? There's a big race riot going on out there, and already this morning a couple of colored soldiers were killed coming in unsus unsuspectingly. If I were you, I'd keep off the street and go right out those tracks by the lake. We took the trainman's advice, thanked him, and toward turned towards the tracks. It would, it would be much slower than walking home, but if he were right, it would be safer. As we turned down the tracks towards the south side of the city, towards the black ghetto, I thought of what had just I thought of what I had just been through in Europe and what now lay before me in America. On one side of us lay the summer warmness of Lake Michigan, on the other side was Chicago, a huge and still growing industrial center of the nation, bursting at the seams, brawling, sprawling Chicago, hot butcher for the nature, as Carl Sandburg had called it. As we walked 
I remembered the war. On returning from Europe, I had felt good to be alive. I was glad to be back with my family, Mom, Pop, and my sister. At 21, my life lay before me. What should I do? The only trade I had learned was waiting tables. I didn't even finish the 8th grade. Perhaps I should go back to France, live there, and become a French citizen. After all, I hadn't seen any Jim Crow there. Had race prejudice in the U.S. lessened? I knew better. Conditions in the States had not changed, but we blacks had. We were determined not to take it anymore. But what was I walking into? Southside Chicago, the black ghettos, was like a besieged city. Whole sections of it were in ruins. Buildings burned and the air was heavy with smoke, reminiscent of the Holocaust from which I had recently returned. Our small band, huddled like a bunch of raw recruits under machine gun fire, turned up 26th Street and then into the heart of the ghetto. At 35th in Indiana, we split up to go our various ways. I headed for home at 42nd place and helped Bowen. None of us returned to work until the riot was over, more than a week later. The battle at home was just as real as the battle in France had been. As I recall, there was a full-scale fight, full-scale street fighting between the black and white. The blacks were snatched from streetcars or beaten or killed. Pitched battles were fought in the ghetto streets. Hoodlums roamed the neighborhoods, shouting at random. Blacks fought back. At the as I saw it at the time, Chicago was two cities. The one was the Chamber of Commerce city of the American Miracle, the Chicago of the 19 1893 World Columbian Exposition. It was the new industrial city, which had grown in 50 years from the frontier town to become the second largest city in the country. The other, the black community, had been part of Chicago almost from the time the city was founded. John Baptiste Pointe du Sable, a black trapper from French Canada, was the first settler. Later came fugitive slaves, after the civil and after the Civil War, more blacks, fleeing from post-reconstruction terror, taking jobs as domestics and personal servants. The large increase was was in the late 1880s through World War I, as industry in the city expanded and the blacks streamed north following the promise of jobs, housing, and an end to Jim Crow but lynching. The Illinois Central Tracks ran straight through the deep through the deep south from Chicago to New Orleans, and the Panama Limited made the run every day. Those that took the train north didn't find a promised land. They found jobs and housing all right, but they had to compete with thousands of recent immigrants from Europe who were also drawn to jobs in the packing houses, stockyards, and steel mills. The promise to, of an end to Jim Crow was not, nowhere fulfilled. In those days, the beaches on Lake Michigan were segregated. Most were reserved for whites only. The 26th Street Beach, close to the black community, was open to blacks, but only as long as they stayed on their own side. The riot had started at this beach, which was then jammed with a late July crowd. Eugene Williams, a 17-year-old black youth, was killed while swimming off the white side of the beach. The black community was immediately alive with accounts of what had happened. That he had been murdered while swimming, that a group of whites had thrown rocks at him and killed him, and that the policemen on duty at the beach had refused to make any arrests. The incident was the spark that ignited the flames of racial animosities which had been smoldering for months. Fighting between blacks and whites broke out on the 26th street beach after William's death. It soon separates. It soon spread beyond the beach and lasted over six days. Before it was over, 38 people, black and white, were dead, 537 injured, and over a thousand homeless. The memory of this rebellion is still very sharp in my mind. It was the great turning point in my life. 
and I've now dedicated myself to the struggle against capitalism ever since. In the following pages of my autobiography, I have attempted to trace the development of that struggle in the hopes that today's youth can learn from both our successes and failures. It is for the it is for the youth and it, it is for the youth and the bright future of a socialist USA that this book has been written. Chapter one A Child of Slaves I was born in South Omaha, Nebraska on february fourth, nineteen eighteen ninety eight, the youngest of three children of Harriet and Haywood Hall. Otto, my my older brother, was born May eighteen ninety one and Eppa, my sister, December 1896. The 1890s had been a decade of far-reaching structural change in the economic and political life of the United States. There were fateful years in which a pattern of 12th century subjugation of blacks was set. A young U.S. imperialism was ready in, 19, in 1898 to shoulder its share of the white man's burden to take its manifest dis destiny beyond the Pacific coast and the Gulf of Mexico. In the war against Spain, it embarked on its first civilizing mission against the colored people of the Philippines and the mixed breeds of Cuba and Puerto Rico. In the course of the decade and, half, and a half of following the Spanish-American War, the two-faced banner of racism and imperialism, benevolence, was carried to the majority of the Caribbean countries and the whole of Latin America. The echoes of this industrial imperialism in America said W.E.B. Du Bois was the expulsion of black men from, um, from American democracy, their subjugation to caste control and wage slavery. In 1877, the Hayes-Tilden Agreement had successfully, successfully aborted the ongoing democratic revolution of reconstruction in the South. Blacks were sold down the river as northern capitalists with assistance from some former slaveholders gained full economic and political control of the South. Henceforth, it was assured that the future development of the region would be carried out in complete harmony with the interests of Wall Street. The following year saw the defeat of the South-based ag agrarian populist movement with its promise of black and white unity against the power of monopoly capital. The counter-revolution against Reconstruction was in full swing. Beginning in 1890, the Southern state legislators enacted a series of disenfranchisement laws. With the next 16 years, these laws were destined to completely abrogate the right of blacks to vote. This same period saw the revival of the notorious black codes, the resurgence of the hooded terror of the, Klu of the Ku Klux Klan, and the defeat for re-election in 1905 of the last black congressman surviving the Reconstruction period. The Jim Crow laws enforcing segregation in, in public facilities were enacted by southern states and, and municipal governments. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld Jim Crow in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision in 1896, declaring that legislation is powerless to eradicate racial instincts and establishing the principle of separate but equal. This decision was only reversed in 1954 when the U.S. Supreme Court held that separate facilities were inherently unequal. At the time when I was born, the black experience was mainly a southern one. The overwhelming majority of black people still were still raised in the South. Most of the black inhabitants of the South, Omaha, were refugees from the 20-year terror of the post-reconstruction pyramid. Omaha itself, despite its Midwestern location, did not escape the terror completely. As indicated by the lynching of a black man, Joe Cole, Joe Coe, by the mob, by a mob in 1891. 
Many people had relatives and families in the South. Some people trekked up to Kansas in 1879 under the leadership of Henry Adams of Louisiana and Moses Papp Singleton of Tennessee, and many had then continued farther north to Omaha and Chicago. My parents were born slaves in 1860. They were three years old at the time of the Emanci Emancipation Proclamation. My father was born on a plantation in Martin County, Tennessee, north of Memphis. The plantation was owned by Colonel Haywood Hall, who my father remembered as a kind and benevolent man. When the slaves were emancipated in 1863, my grandfather, with the consent of Mr. Hall, took both the given name and surname of his former master. I never knew Grandfather Hall, as he died before I was born. According to father and uncle and uncles, he was, as they say in those days, much of a man. He was active in local reconstruction politics and probably belonged to the black militia. Although Tennessee did, did not have a reconstruction government, there were many whites who supported the democratic aims that were pr pursued during the reconstruction period. But Tennessee was also home to the Ku Klux Klan, who were first organized after the Civil War. In the terror that followed the Hayes-Tilden Agreement, these night Riders had, mar had marked my grandfather out as a bad N-word for lynching. At first, they were deterred because of the paternalism of Colonel Hall. Many of Hall's former slaves still lived on the, his plantation after the war ended, and the colonel had let it known that he would kill the first son of a bitch that trespassed on his property and try to terrorize his n-words. But the a anger of the night riders, strengthened by corn liquor, finally overcame their fear of Colonel Hall. My father, who was about 15 at the time, described what happened. One night, the clansmen rode into the plantation and headed straight for grandfather's cabin. They broke open the door and poked his head and poked his head into the darkened cabin. Hey, Hall's N-word, where are you? My grandfather was standing inside and fired a shotgun point blank at the hooded head. The clansman, half his head blown off, toppled onto the floor of the cabin, and his companions mounted their horses and fled. Grandmother then pregnant fell against the iron bed. Grandfather got the family out of the cabin and they ran to the big house for protection. It was obvious they couldn't stay in Tennessee, so Colonel hitched them hitched up a wagon and personally drove them to safety outside of Martin County. Some of Grandfather's family were already living in Des, Mo in De Des Moines, Iowa, so the Hall family left by train for Des Moines the following morning. The shock of the experience was so great that Grandmother gave birth prematurely to their third child, my Uncle George, who lived to be 95. Grandmother, however, however, became chronically invalid and died a few years after the, tr after the flight from Tennessee. Father was only in his teens when the family left for Des Moines, so he spent most of his youth there. In late 1880s, he left and moved to South Omaha, where there was more of a chance to get work. He got a job at Kada's Packing Company, where he worked for more than 20 years, first as a beef lugger, loading the sides of beef on refrigerated freight cars, and as a janitor in the main office building. Not long after his arrival, he met and married mother, Harriet Thorpe, who came up from Kansas City, Missouri, about the same time. Father was powerfully built, of medium height, but with tremendous breadth. He had a 46-inch chest and weighed over 200 pounds. He was an extremely intelligent man. With little or no formal schooling, he had taught himself to read and write, and was a prodigious reader. Unfortunately, despite his great strength, he was not much of a fighter, or so it seemed to me. In later years, some of his old, some of the old slave psychology and fear remain. He was an ardent admirer of Booker T. Washington, who, who, 
in his Atlanta Compromise speech of 1895, had called on blacks to submit to the racist status quo. Uncle George was the opposite. He would brook no insult and had been known to clean out a whole bar room when offended. The middle brother, Watt, was also a fighter, but was especially dangerous if he had a knife or had been drinking. I remember both of them complaining of my father's timidity. Timid, timidity. My mother's family also had a great fighting spirit. Her father, Jerry Thorpe, was born on a plantation near Bo Bowling Green, Kentucky. He was illiterate, but very smart and very strong. Even as an old man, his appearance made us believe the stories that were told of his strength as a young man. When he was feeling fine and happy, his exuberance would be that would get the best of him, and he'd grab the largest man around him, hoist him on his shoulders, and run around the yard with him. Grandfather Thorpe was half Creek Indian, and an Indian profile with a hump nose and high cheekbones. His hair was short and curly, and had a light brown complexion. He had a straggly white beard, and had tried to cultivate into a Van Dyke. He said his father was a Creek Indian, and his mother a black plantation slave. No one knew his exact age, but we made a guess based on, this, on a story he often told us. He was about six or seven years old when he said, The stars fell. What was that, Grandpa? Oh, one night the stars fell. I remember it very clearly. The skies were all lit up by falling stars. People were scared, almost out of their wits. The old master and mistresses and all the slaves were running out, out on the road, falling down to the knees to pray and ask for forgiveness. We thought it was judgment day had surely come. Glory hallelujah. It was the last fire. The next day, the ground was covered with ashes. At first we thought that this was all just his imagination, something he had fantasized as a child and then remembered as a real event. But when my older brother Otto was in school, he got interested in astronomy and came across a reference to a meteor shower in 1833. We figured out that that was what Grandfather Thorpe had been talking about, so we was concluded that he was born around 1825 or 1826. Grandfather Thorpe was filled with stories, many about slavery. Children, I've got scars I'll carry to my grave. He would show us the welts on his back from slave beatings. My grandmother also had them. Most of his beatings came from the, his first master in Kentucky, but he was later sold to a man in Missouri, who he said treated him much better. That may have been due to part in his value as a slave. He was both skilled as a carpenter and a cabinet maker. My grandfather had many stories to tell about the Civil War. He was born. He was, he was in Missouri at the time, living in an area that was first taken by a group known as Quantrell's Raiders, a guerrilla-like band of irregulars who fought for the South and then by the Union forces. When the Union soldiers first came into the plantation, they would call in the slaves from the fields and make them sit down in great drawing room of the house. They would then force the masters and mistresses of the family to cook and serve the slaves. Grandfather told us that the soldiers would never eat any of the food that was served because they were afraid of getting poisoned. Mas the master on the plantation was generally decent when it came became clear that the Union forces were going to control the area for a while. At that time, Grandfather and Grandmother Anne lived on adjacent plantations somewhere near Moberly, Missouri. Grandfather was allowed to visit Anne on weekends, often on Sundays when he would make a visit. He was challenged by Union guards. They would roughly demand to know his mission. My Grandfather and Grandmother got married with the agreement of their two masters and eventually had a family of five daughters and two sons. Grandfather Thorpe was given a plot of land in return for his services as a carpenter, but the family soon moved into Moberly. As the children reached working age, the family began to break up. 
but the girls always remained very close. They came back to visit frequently, but never and never broke family ties as the boys had. My mother Harriet was born when grandmother was a slave on the plantation of Squire Sweeney in Howard County, Missouri. After the family moved into Moberly, mother worked for a white family in town. She later went to St. Joseph's, Missouri to work for another white family. One day while she was at work in St. Joseph, she heard a shot and screams from down the street. She ran out to see what had happened. There was a great commotion and a crowd of people was gathering in front of the house next door. The family living there went by the name of Howard, a man, a wife, and two children. Both the man and his wife were church members. They appeared to be most respectable couple. Miss Howard had been very active in church affairs and socials. Her husband was frequently absent because, she said, he was a traveling salesman and his work took him out of town for long periods of time. What the neighbors were not aware of that was that Miss Howard was none other than the legendary Jesse James. He was shot and killed. Mr. Howard was none other than the legendary Jesse James. He was shot in the back wall, hanging a picture in his house. The man who had killed him was Robert Ford, a member of Jesse's own gang who turned traitor after for a bribe offered by the Burns Detective Agency. When Mother did the laundry, I remember she would often sing the Ballad of Jesse James, a song which became popular after his death. Jesse James was a man. He killed many a man. The, the man that robbed the, Dennis, the Denver train. It was a dirty little coward who shot Mr. Howard and then laid Jesse James in his grave. Of oh, the people held their breath when they heard of Jesse's death and when they wondered how he came to die, he was shot on the sly by little Robert Ford and they laid poor Je Jesse in his grave. In 1893, my mother went to Chicago to visit her sister and see the exposition. She said she saw Frank James, Jesse's brother. He was out of prison then, a very dignified old man with a long white beard. He had been hired around. He had been hired to ride around as an attraction at one of the exhibitions. Mother kept moving. No mother kept moving up to the north by stages. After the job in St. Joseph's, she found work in St. Louis. She arrived to find the city in a tense situation. The whole town was on the verge of a race riot. The black community was elated, for Brady was a... Wait, hold up. The, the immediate cause was the murder of an Irish cop named Brady. The black community was elated, for Brader was an N-word hating cop, who had carved notches on his pistol to show the number of blacks he had killed. Brady finally met his end at the hand of a bad black man who ran a gambling house in Brady's district. The gambling, of course, was illegal, but as was often the case, the cops were paid off with a cut from the takings of the house. As the stories was told to me, Brady and the gambler met on the street one day and got into an argument. Brady accused the gambler of not giving him his proper cut. This was denied vehemently. Brady then demanded to close the threatened to close the place down. The black man told him, "Don't you come into my place where the game's going when the game is going on." He then turned and walked off. The scene was witnessed by several blacks, and the news of how the gambler had defied Brady spread immediately throughout the black district. That this was bad stuff for Brady. It might lead to N-words getting notions, as the cops put it. A few days passed, and Brady made his move. He went to the gambling house when the game, game was on, and was shot dead. Some anonymous black bard wrote a song about it all. Brady, why didn't you run? You know you done wrong. You came in the room when the game was on. Brady went down looking mighty curious. The devil said, where are you from? I'm from East St. Louis. 
East St. Louis, come this way. I've been expecting you every day. The song was immediately popular in the black community and became a symbol of rebellious feelings. Mother said that she had, when she had arrived in St. Louis, Louis, blacks were singing the song all over town. The police realized the dangers of such notions and began to arrest anyone they caught singing it. Forty years later, I was pleasantly surprised to hear Carl Sandburg sing the same song as part of his repertoire of folk ballads of the Midwest. I had not heard it since Mother had sung it to us. Mother later moved on to Kansas City, Missouri, and then to South Omaha. The marriage there to my father was her second. As a very young girl in Moberly, she had married John Harvey, but he was, to use her words, a no-good yella n-word who expected me to support him. They had one child, Gertrude, before he deserted her. Gertie came to Omaha sometime after my mother and married my father's younger brother, George. I had a feeling that mother promoted this match. Two hard-working, sober Hall brothers must be quite a catch. As I remember mother in my childhood years, she was a small brown-skinned woman, rather on the plumpish side, with a large and beautiful soft brown eyes. She had the humped Indian nose of the Thorpe, of the Thorpe family. My first memory of her is hearing her sing as she did the housework. She did the melodious, she had a melodious contralto voice and what seemed to be an endless and varied repertoire. Much of what I know about this period, I learned from her songs. Those included lullabies, go to sleep you little pickaninny, mama's gonna swat you if you don't, and many spirituals and jubilee songs. There are also innumerable folk ballads and popular songs of her day, like Down at the Ball and Where'd You Get That Hat? Then there were the old songs the slaves sang about their masters fleeing the Union Army, the year of the Jubilo. I'm just, I'm just gonna skip that one. Mother never went to school a day in her life, but she had a phenomenal memory and was a virtual rep repository of black folklore. My brother Otto taught her to read and write when she was 40 years old. She told the stories of life on the plantation, of the hollers they used. When a slave wanted to talk to a friend on the neighboring plantation, she would throw back her head and half and throw her throw back her head and half sing, half yell, "Oh Bessie, I want to see I want to see you." Often often you could hear one of the hollers a mile away. When mother was a girl, camp meetings were a big part of her life. She had the songs she remembered from the meetings like, "I don't feel no weary, no ways tired." and she would imita imitate the preachers with all of their promises of fire and brimstone. Later, later, when we lived in South Omaha, she was very active in the African Methodist Episcop Episcopal Church. As a means of raising friends, she used to organize church the theatricals. Otto would help her read the plays, and sh she would then direct them and usually play the leading role herself. She was a natural mimic. I heard her go through, go through entire plays from beginning to end, imitating voices, even male ones, and the actions of the performers. In addition to caring for Otto, Effa, and myself, Mother got jobs catering parties for the rich white families in northern Omaha. She would bring us, bring us back all sorts of goodies and leftovers from these parties. Sometimes she would get together with her friends among other domestics and they would have a great time panning their employers and exchanging news of the white folks' scandalous doings. Mother had a great fighting spirit of her, of her family. She was a strong-minded woman 
with great ambition for her children, especially for us Bowies. Eppa, who was a plain black girl, was sensitive but physically tough, courageous, and a regular tomboy. Worried about her future, Mother insisted that she learn piano, and arranged for her to take lessons at 25 cents per each. Though she learned to play minor classes such as poet and peasant, Arias from such operas as Ida and Il Trivoltor accompanied the choir and so on. Eppa never liked music very much. It was not very consoled by the way mum by consoled by it the way mother was. As my as a wife, mother had the way had a way of making father feel part of the, feel the part of the man of the house. She flattered his ego and always addressed him by as Mr. Hall in front of guests and us children. Life in South Omaha. You ask what town I love the best. South Omaha, South Omaha, the fairest town of all the rest. South Omaha, South Omaha, where's yonder's Papillon's limp stream, to where Missouri's waters gleam. O fairest town of O town of mine, South Omaha, South Omaha. In the earliest part of the twentieth of the century, the days of my youth. South Omaha was an independent city. In 1915, it was annexed to become part of the larger city of Omaha. Like many Midwestern towns, the city took its name from the original inhabitants of the area. In this case, it was the Omaha Indians of the Sioux Tribe, of the Sioux Tribal family. The area was a camping ground of the Lewis and Clark Expedition of 1804. It grew in importance when it became a licensed trading post and an important trading outfit. Outfitting an important outfitting point during the Colorado Gold Rush, but the main growth of South Omaha came in the late 1880s as the meatpacking industry developed. <clears throat> in 1877, the first refrigerated railroad cars were perfected. This made it possible to slaughter livestock in the Midwest, ship it to the, sheep the meat in large, uh, to the large markets in eastern cities. As a result, the meatpacking industry grew tremendously in the Midwest. The city leaders saw the opportunity and encouraged and expand, exp, encouraged the expanding packing industry to settle there, offering them special tax concessions and so forth. The town situated uh, on a plateau back from the big muddy, the Missouri River, began to grow. Soon it was almost an industrial suburb of Omaha and was one of the three largest packing centers in the country. All the packers, all of the big packers at the time, Armour, Swift, Wilson and Cuddy had the big branches there. Cuddy's main plant was in South Omaha. The industry brought with it growing railroad traffic. As a boy, I watched the dozens of lines of cars as they carried livestock from the west and butchered meat to ship out to the east. The Burlington, the Chicago and Northwest, the Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul and Pacific, the Illinois Central, the Rock Island, the Union Pacific, all of these lines had terminals there. By 1910, the, by 1910, Omaha was the fourth-largest railway center in the country. When I was born in 1898, South Omaha was a bustling town of about 20,000. Most of these 20,000s were foreign-born and first-generation immigrants. The two largest groups were the Irish and the Bohemians, or Czechs. There were a sprinkling of other Slavic groups, Poles, Russians, Serbs, as well as Germans, Greeks, and Italians. The Bohemians were the largest ethnic group in town. They lived mainly in the southern part of town, towards the river. 
in Brown Park and Albright sections. One thing that impressed me was their concern with education. They were a cultured group of people, and I can't, rem I can't remember any of them being illiterate, and they had their own newspaper. They were involved in the political wheelings and dealings of the town and were successful at it. At one time, both the mayor and chief of, chief of police were bohemians. The Irish were the second largest group scattered throughout the town. The newly arrived poor shanty Irish would first settle on Indian Hill near the stockyards. There were two classes of Irish, the shanty Irish on that one hand the old, and the old settlers or lace curtain Irish on the other. The second group, who had settled only one generation before, was mostly made up of middle-class, white-collar, civil service, and professional workers who lived near North Omaha. There were also a few Irish who were very rich, managers' executives who lived in Omaha proper. They had become well assimilated into the community. The tendency was, the tendency was for the poor Irish to live in South Omaha, and those who had made it to one degree or another would move up to the North Omaha, or Omaha proper. There were only a few dozen black families in South Omaha, scattered throughout the community. There was no black ghetto, and, as I saw it, no Negro problem. This was due to, undoubtedly, to our small numbers. Although there, were, there, although there was a relatively large number of blacks living in North Omaha, the black community there had grown after blacks were brought in as strike breakers during the 19, 1894 strike in the packing industry, but no real ghettos developed until after World War I. Our family lived in the heart of the Bohemian neighborhood in South Omaha. Nearly all of our neighbors were Bohemians. They came from many backgrounds. They were workers and small peasants, professionals, artists, musicians, and other skilled artisans, all fleeing from the oppressive rule of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They were friendly people and kept up their language and traditions. On Saturdays, families would gather at one of the beer gardens to sing and dance. I remember watching them dance Scot Scottishes and polkas, listening to the beautiful music of their bands and orchestras, or running after the great marching bands when they went in parade. On special occasions, they would bring out their colorful costumes. Much of the community life was centered around the gymnastic clubs, Suckles or Turner Halls, which they had established. There were differences. There were, there were differences in how the ethnic groups related to each other and to the blacks in town. In those days, Indian Hill was the stomping ground of a teenage Irish toes, toughs. One day, a mob of predominantly Irish youth ran the small Greek colony out of town when their members allegedly killed an Irish cop. I remember seeing the Greek community leaving one Sunday, Sunday afternoon. They were men, women, and children, about 100 in all, walking down the railroad tracks carrying everything they could hold. Some of their houses had been burned and a few had been beaten up in town. We, sh we should have seen the danger for us in this, but one black man even boasted to my father about how he had helped run the Greeks out. My father called him a fool. What business did you have helping that bunch of whites? Next time it might be you they run out. The incident was an ominous sign of tensions that were to come many years later. At the time, however, our family had gotten along well with all the immigrant families in our immediate, immediate neighborhood. I loved the sweet, haunting melodies of the Irish folk ballads, Rose of Trolley, Mother Macri, and many, many of the popular songs like My, my, like my Irish Malio and Agrigawan, I Want to Go Back to Oregon. 
there was a bohemian couple living next door. On occasion, Mr. Rayo would get a bit too much under his belt. He'd come home and really raise hell. Once this happened, Ms. Rayel scurried to Officer Brigham, the black cop, to get some help. I remember one afternoon when Brigham came to lend a hand in taming him, though Bohemian was a little guy compared to him. Officer Brigham threw him down out in the yard and plunked himself down on Rayo's back. Dust flew as he kicked and thrashed and tried to get out from under the black man. Bingham had just rode the storm, and when Rayo raised his head, he'd smack him around until the rebellion subsided. Had enough? He'd yell at his victim. You gonna behave now and mind what Mrs. Rayo says? All the, white, all the while, she was running around them, waving her apron. Beat him some more, Mr. Bingham, please. Make him good. Finally, either Mr. Bingham got tired or Mr. Rayo just gave out and peace returned to the neighborhood. Police and community relations were less tense then. The cops knew how to control a situation without using guns. Often this meant they get into actual fistfights. In those days, there was a big black guy in, the, in town named Sam, a beef lugger like my father. Sam was a nice, quiet guy, but on occasion he'd go on a drunk and fight anyone with, within arm's length, which was a big area. The cops generally handled it by fighting it out with him. But I remember one time Sam really caused a row. It was outside a bar on J Street up in Omaha proper. During the course of his drunk, he'd beaten up five or six of the regular cops. This called for extreme me measures. Briggs, the chief of police, came to the scene and restored law and order. He marched up to Sam and threw out his chest. Now, Sam, it's time for you to behave, you hear. He even pulled out his thirty-eight to show him he meant business. But Sam wasn't ready to behave. He came at Briggs, intending to lay him out like he'd done with all the other officers. Briggs backed up one step at a time. Sam, you stop. You hear me, Sam? Time to stop now. Sam forced Briggs all the way back to his carriage. To his carriage. Once Briggs was in, he delivered his final threat. Sam, you come down to City Hall on Monday and see me. This just can't happen this way. Briggs drove off. Monday morning came, and Sam went down to City Hall. He was fined for being drunk and disorderly. He didn't fight the court and willingly paid the fine. It seemed like an unwritten agreement. Cops wouldn't shoot when Sam went on a spree. When it was over, Sam would go and pay his fine, and that would be the end of the whole business. Our fam family was the only black family in our neighborhood, and we were and we were pretty well insulated from the racist pressures of the outside world. As children were only dimly aware of the du of what Du Bois called the veil of color between the races. I first became aware of the veil, not from anything that happened in town, but from what my parents and grandparents told me about how southern whites had persecuted blacks and how they had suffered under slavery. I remember Grandmother and Grandfather Thorpe showing me the scars they had on their backs from the overseer's lash. I remember Pa reading newspaper accounts of the endless reign of lynch terror in the South and about the 1908 riots in Springfield, Illinois. In 1908, Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, defeated the great white hope, Jim Jeffries. Pa said that it was occasion for a new occasion for a new round of lynchings in the South. There were other great black fighters, Sam Langford, Joe Janet, and Sam McVeigh, for instance. But Johnson was the first black heavyweight to be able to fight for the championship and the first to win it. He was conscious that he was black man. He was a black man in a racist world. I'm black, and they never let me forget it. I'm black. I'll never forget it. Jeffries had been pushed as the hope of the white race to reclaim the heavyweight crown from Johnson.
When Johnson knocked out Jeffries, it was a symbol of the Black's defiance and self-assertion. To Blacks, the victory meant pride and hope. It was a challenge. It was to. It was a challenge to the authority of, a, of bigoted whites, and to them it called for extra measures to keep the N-words in their place. To us children, black repression seemed restricted to the South. Outside the orbit of our immediate experience, as I saw it then, there was no deliberate plot of the white of white against black. I thought there were two kinds of white folk, good and bad, and the latter were mainly in the South. Most of those I knew in South Omaha were the good people. Disillusionment came later in my life. The friendly interracial atmosphere of South Omaha was illustrated by the presence of Officer Bingham and Officer Bellow, two black cops in the town's small police force. Bingham was a big, black, and jolly fellow. His, his beat was our neighborhood. Bellow was a tall, slim, ramrod straight, and light brown-skinned black. He was a veteran of the Black Tenth Cavalry. He had fought in the Indian Wars against Geronimo and had participated in the chase for Billy the Kid. Bellow was a veteran of the Spanish-American War. All the kids, black and white, regarded him with special awe and respect. Both black officers were treated as respectful members of the community, liked by the people because they, ha because they had their confidence. While they wore guns, they never seemed to use them. These cops fought, fought tough characters with fists and clubs, pulling the gun only rarely and then only in self-defense. It seemed that a large part of their duty was to keep the kids out of mischief. Officer Bingham, the bohemian woman across the alley would call, would you please keep an eye on my boy Frontal? See he don't make, see he don't make trouble. Don't worry, Miss Braz, Miss Brazda, he's a good boy. Has Haywood been a good boy? Oh yes, Mrs. Hall, he's all right, and he would stop for a chat. My sister Eppa, a, a, my sister Eppa, a lad called Willie Starons, and I were the only black kids in the Brown Park Elementary School. My brother, my brother Otto had already graduated and was in South Omaha High School. Our schoolmates were predominantly Bohemians, with a sprinkling of Irish-German and a few Anglo-Americans. A close childhood friend, a, my close childhood chums included two Bohemian lads, Frank Verazda and Jimmy Rao, an Anglo-Irish kid, Earl Power, and Willie Ziegler, who was of German parentage. We were we were an inseparable fivesome, in and out of each other's homes all the time. During my first years in school, I was plagued by asthma and was absent from school many months at a time. The result was that I was a year behind. I finally outgrew this infirmity and became a strong, healthy boy. By the time I was in 8th grade, I had become one of the best students in my class, sharing this honor with a bohemian girl, Bertha Himmel. Both of us could solve any problem in arithmetic, both were good at spelling, and at inter-school spelling bees, our school usually won the first prize. My self-confidence was encouraged by my teachers, all of whom were white and yet uniformly kind and sympathetic. Of course, like all kids, I had plenty of fights, but race was seldom involved. Occasionally, I would hear the word N-word. While it invoked anger at me, it seemed no more disparaging than the term bohunk, shrini, dago, shanty Irish, or poor white trash. These were all terms of common usage, interchangeable as slurring epithets on one's ethnic background, and usually employed outside of hearing a person, outside the hearing of the person in question. In contrast to the daily life of the neighborhood, however, the virus of racism was subtly interjected into the classroom of the Brown, school, Brown Park School I attended. 
The five races of mankind, of mankind illustrated in our geography book portrayed the Negro as with a receding forehead and the prognatorous jaw of, the, of a gorilla. There was a complete absence of black heroes in the history books, supporting the inference that the black man had contributed nothing to, the civil, to civilization. We were taught that blocks, blacks were brought out of the savagery of the jungles of Africa and introduced to the civilization through slavery under the benevolent auspices of the white man. In spite of my father's submissive attitude, it, it is to him that I must give credit for, this, for scotching this big lie about the Negro's past. His attitude grew out of his concern for our survival in a hostile environment. He felt most strange, strongly that the Negro was not innately inferior. He perceived that his children must have some sense of self-respect and confidence to sustain them until the distant day when, through obvious merit and, desert, and just desert, blacks would receive their award for equality and recognition. Father possessed an amazing store of knowledge which he had culled from his readings. He would tell us about the black civilizations of ancient Egypt, Egypt Ethiopia, and Kush, which he would quote from the quote from the songs of Solomon. I am black and comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. He would tell us about the black soldiers in the Civil War, about the massacre of blacks at Fort Pillow, and the battle cries they used afterwards. Remember Fort Pillow, remember Fort Pillow. He knew about the Haitian Revolution, the defeat of Napoleon's army by Toussaint L'Overture, Dessalines, and Jean Christophe. He told us about the famous Zulu chief Shaka in South Africa, and Alexandre Dumas, the great French romanticist, and Pushkin, the great Russian poet, who were both black. Father said that he had taught himself to read and write. He had an extensive library, which took up half of one of our walls in our living room. His books were ma mainly historical works. His favorite subject, there are such titles as Decisive, The Decisive Battles of the World, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, and many histories of England, France, Germany, and Russia. He had Stanley in Africa, and a number of biographies of famous men, including Napoleon, Caesar, and Hannibal, who Father said was a Negro. He had Scott's Ivanhoe in, Waverly, in, in his Waverly novels, Bulwer, Bulwer Lighton, Alexander Dumas' novels, and The Life, of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, and Up from Slavery by Booker T. Washington. On another wall, there was a huge picture of the charge of the 25th Black Infantry and the 10th Cavalry at San Juan Hill, rescuing Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. There were pictures of Frederick Douglass and, of course, his hero, Booker T. Washington. He would lecture to us on history, displaying his extensive knowledge. He was a great admirer of Napoleon. He'd get us, he would get into one of his lecturing moods and pace up and down with his hands behind his back before the rapt audience of my sister Eppa and myself. Talking about the Battle of Waterloo, he would say, Wellington was in a tough spot that day. Napoleon was about to with him. The trouble was Blocher hadn't shown up. Who was he, Pa? He was the German general who was supposed to reinforce Wellington with 13,000 Prussian troops. Wellington was getting awful nervous, walking up and down behind his lines saying, Oh, if Blucher fails to come, where is Blucher? Did he finally get there, Pa? Yes, son. He finally got there and turned the tide of the battle. And if he hadn't shown up, and Napoleon had won, the whole course of history would have been changed. It was through Father that I had entered the world of books. I developed an unquenchable thirst to learn about people and their history. 
I remember going to the town library when I was 9 or 10 asking, Do you have a history of the world for children? My first love of books became the historical novel. I loved George Henty's books, and they always de dealt with the exploits of a 16-year-old during an important historical period. Through Henty's heroes, I, I too was with Bonnie Prince Charlie, with Wellington in the Spanish Peninsula, with Gustavus Adolphus at Luston in the Thirty Years' Wars, with Clive in India, under Drake's flag, around the world. I was also fascinated by romances of the feudal period, such as When Knighthood Was in Fl Flower and Ivanhoe. I read Twain's Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, and the, and the works of H. Ryder Haggard. I went through a definite Anglophile stage, in part due to the influence of a Jamaican named Mr. Williams, who worked as an assistant janitor with my father. Mr. Williams was a huge black man with scars all over his face. He was a former stoker in the British Navy. I was attracted by his strange accent and haughty demeanor. Evidently, he saw in me an, an appreciative audience. I would listen with open mouth and wonder at the stories of the strange places he had seen, of his adventures in faraway lands. He was a real British patriot, a black imperialist, if such was possible. He would declare, the sun never sets on the British Empire and then sing, Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. He quoted Napoleonus, allegedly saying, Britain is a small garden, but she grows some bitter weeds, and give me French soldiers and British officers, and I will conquer the world. I pictured myself as a British sailor, sa sailor and read, Two Years Before the Mast, and Battle of Trafalgar. Do you think they would let me join the British Navy, I asked Mr. Williams. No, my lad, he answered. You have to be a British citizen or subject to do that. I was quite disappointed. But it was not only the British romance that fascinated me. At about the age of 12, I became a Francophile. I had read all of Dumas' novels and quite a number of other novels about France. I had, I had begun to read French history, which to me turned out to be as interesting as the novels and equally romantic. I read about Joan of Arc, the Hundred Years' War, Francis I, about Catherine de Medici, the Huguenots, and Admiral Coligny, the Duke de Guise, the Massacre of St. Bartholomew Eve, or of the Night of Long Knives. Then the French Revolution, A Tale of Two Cities, the guillotining of Charlotte Corday, and the assassination of Marat. Occasionally, the ugly reality of race would intrude upon the dream world that was my childhood. I distinctly remember two such occasions. One was when a white family from Arkansas moved across the alley from us. Mr. Fault, the patriarch of the clan, was a typical redneck pe peckerwood. He would sit around the store storefront chewing tobacco, telling how they treated N-words down, down his way. They were made to stay in their place, down the cotton patch, not in factories taking white man's jobs. As I remember, his racist harangues did not make much of an impression on the local white audience. Apparently, at the time, there was no feeling of competition in South Omaha because there were so few blacks. I would also imagine that his slovenly appearance does not jive with his white supremacist pr pretensions. One day, a substitute teacher took over our class. I was about, I was about 10 years old. The substitute teacher was a southerner from Arkansas. During history class, she started talking about the Civil War. 
The slaves, she said, did not really want freedom because they were happy as they were. They would have been freed by their masters in a few years anyway. Her villain was General Grant, who she contrasted unfavorably with General Robert E. Lee. Lee was a gentleman, she put forth, but Grant was a cigar-smoking, liquor-drinking roughneck. She didn't like Sherman either, and talked about his murdering rampage through Georgia. I wasn't about to take all of this, and challenged her. I don't know about General Grant's habits, but he did beat Lee. Besides, Lee couldn't have been much of a gentleman. He owned slaves. Livid with rage, she shouted, that's enough. What could I say about you? Well, what could you say, I challenged. She apparently saw that wild racists she apparently saw that wild racist statements wouldn't work in this situation, and that I was trying to provoke her to do something like that. She cut the argument short she cut short the argument, shouting, That's enough. Yes, that's enough, I sassed. During heated during the heated exchange I felt I had sympathy of most of my classmates. After school some gathered around me and said, You certainly told her off. When I told mother, she supported me. You done right, son, she said. But father was not so sure. You might have got you might have gotten into trouble. I feel now that one of the reasons for my self confidence during my childhood years and why the racist notions of innate black inferiority left me cold was was my brother Otto. His example belied, belied such claim. He was the most brilliant one in our family, and probably all of South Omaha. He skipped a grade both in grade school and in high school, and was a real prodigy. He was a natural poet, and won many prizes in composition. His poems on the charge of the 25th Black Infantry and the 10th Cavalry at San Juan Hill was published in one of the Omaha's dailies. Otto was praised by all of his teachers, an unusual boy, they said, clearly destined to become the leader of his race. Once, one day, one of his teachers and a Catholic priest called on my mother and father to talk about Otto's future. Otto was about 14 at the time. They suggested that he might be a good material for priesthood, and that there is a possibility of his getting a scholarship at Craigton University, Omaha's favorite Jesuit school. The teacher suggested that if, they, if this were agreed to, he should take up Latin. My parents were extremely flattered, despite the fact that they were good Methodists. Even father, who did not seem ambitious for his children, was impressed. But when the proposition was placed before Otto, he vehemently disagreed. He did not want to become a priest, he did, nor did he want to study Latin. He wanted, he said, to become an architect, doctors, dentists, teachers, and preachers. These were the professions for an ambitious black in these, those days. An architect, they exclaimed in amazement. Who had ever heard of a black architect? Who had ever heard of a black priest, Otto retorted. At that time, there were only two or three black priests in the entire U.S. But Otto, mother argued, you'll have the support of a lot of prominent white folks. They'll help you get through college. But Otto would have none of it. Undoubtedly, my parents thought that they could finally wear down his opposition and that he would become more amenable in time. They did force him to take Latin, a subject he hated. Otto studied in school, but no longer seemed interested in his studies. He dropped out of school suddenly his senior year. He was 16. He left home and got a job as a bellhop in a hotel in North Omaha's black community. This move cut completely the few remaining ties he had with his white age group in South Omaha. Otto's dropout from high school evidently signified that he had given up, given up the struggle to be somebody in, a white, in the white world. He had become disillusioned with the white world and therefore sought identity with his own people. During my childhood years, our relationship had, had never been close. There was, of course, the age gap, 
He was seven years older, but even in later years when we were closer and had more in common, we never talked about our childhood. I don't know why. As a child, I, I had been proud of his academic feats and boasted about them to my friends. At the time he left high school, Otto was the only black in South Omaha High School and was about to become the first black graduate. Highly praised by his teachers and popular among his fellow students, he was a real showpiece of the school. What, had, what caused them to drop out of school in his senior year? Thinking back on it, I don't believe that it had anything to do with the attempt to make him a priest. I think, it had, I think that had he won that battle a couple of years er, before at least, I had never heard the matter mentioned again. Otto undoubtedly had had high aspirations at one time, as evidently, as evidenced by his desire to become an architect. Somewhere along the lines, they disappeared, perhaps contributing, perhaps a contributing factor, was the was the accumulating effect of Otto's malady. On occasion, the mother would remind us that Otto had water on the brain, and that was he was different from Epa and myself. At the time, he seemed smarter than us, more independent and in rebellion against Pa's lack of encouragement, moral support, and parental authority. Certainly in adult life, Otto used to sleep about 10 hours a day and often, very often fell asleep in meetings. He seemed to lack the ability of prolonged concentration. Whatever brain, although whatever brain damage he may have suffered never affected the quickness of his mind and ability to grasp the nub of a question or the capacity for leadership, which he showed on a number of occasions. But more debilitating, probably, than the physical disease was the generational gap of the era between the parents of slave black, of slave backgrounds and children born free, particularly in the North. Otto's dropping out of school and his later radical political development were undoubtedly related to a conflict more intense than the ones of today. Father was an ardent follower of Booker T. Washington. His ambitions for his son were very modest, to put it mildly. He undoubtedly would have been satisfied to become a good law-abiding citizen with stable jobs. He thought of jobs a notch or two above his own station, like a postal employee, a skilled tradesman, or a clerk in the civil service. The offer for a scholarship priesthood was, therefore, simply beyond his expectations, and I guess that the old man was deeply disappointed at Otto's rejection of it. Otto was quite independent and would not conform to father's idea of discipline. For example, he was completely turned off on the question of religion, and Father could not force him to go to church. I don't remember Otto ever going to church with the family. Father claimed that Otto was irresponsible and wild. As a result, there was a mutual hostility between them. The results were numerous thrashings when Otto was young, and violent quarrels between them as he grew older. Mother would usually def defend Otto. Grandpa Thorpe, himself a strict disciplinarian, would warn Mother. Haiti, you mark my words, that boy is going to land in the pen. At some point, Otto came to the conclusion that there was no use in continuing his education. He must have felt that it was irrelevant. Opportunities for educated blacks were few, even in North Omaha's black community, where there were only a few professionals. In that community, there were a few preachers, one doctor, one dentist, and one or two teachers. Black businesses consisted of owners and s of several undertaking establishments, a couple of barber shops, and a few pool rooms. The only other blacks in, the, in any sort of middle-class position were a few postal employees, civil service workers, Pullman porters, and waiters. 
Then, too, Otto had passed through the age of puberty and was becoming more and more conscious of his race. Along with the natural detachment and withdrawal from childhood, socializing with girls, in his case, white girls who were former childhood sweethearts. Otto experienced a withdrawal from, experienced a withdrawal from non-socialization because of his race. He ended up quite alone because there were not many black kids his age in South Omaha. There wasn't much, of a, much contact with the black kids from North Omaha either. As a very sensitive person on the verge of manhood, I imagine he had to feel these changes keenly. After he dropped out of, high, uh, dropped out of school in 1908, Otto was soon attracted to the sporting life, the pool halls and sporting halls of North Omaha. He wanted to be among black people. He was anxious to get away from father. Thus, he left home and got jobs as a bellhop, shoeshine boy, and a busboy. He began to absorb a new way of life, stepping fully into the social life of the black community in North Omaha. He evidently healed the call of blood and was gone back to the race. It was not until a few years later, when I had similar experiences, that I understood that Otto had arrived at the first stage of his identity crisis, that it had gone to where he felt he belonged. He would come home quite often, though, flaunting his new clothes, a, bo a box-backed suit, fitting nowhere but the shoulders, high-heeled Stacy Aid of Adam's buttons, and a Stetson hat. He'd give a few dollars to mother and some dimes to me and my sister. Sometimes he would bring a pretty girlfriend with him, but most of the time he would bring a young man, Henry Starens, who was a piano player. He played a style popular in those days, later to be known as a boogie-woogie, in which the piano was the whole orchestra. He played Marini's famous blues, Make Me a Pallet on Your Floor, Make it, make it Where Your Man Will Never Know, and the old favorite, Alabama Bound. Alabama Bound, I'm Alabama Bound. Oh, babe, don't leave me here. Just leave a dime for my beer. A boy of ten at the time, I was tremendously impressed. There is no doubt that Otto's experiences served to weaken some of my childish notions about making it in the white world. Haley's Comment and My Religion On May 4, 1910, Haley's Comment appeared flaring down out of the heavens, its luminous tail switching to earth. It was an ominous sight. A rash of religious revival swept Omaha. Prophets and messiahs appeared on the street corners in church, preaching the end of the world. Hardened sinners got religion. Backsliders renewed their faith. faith. The comet, with its tail moving ever closer to the earth, seemed to lend credence to the forecast of an imminent cosmic disaster. Both my mother and father were deeply religious. Theirs was that old-time religion, the fire and brimstone kind, which leaned heavily on the Old Testament. It was the kind that accepted the Bible and all its legends as literal gospel truth. We children had the fear of the Lord drilled into us from an early age. My image of God was that of a vengeful old man who demanded unquestioned faith, strict obedience, and repentant love as price for salvation. I am the, I am the Lord thy God and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children upon the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, that sh and show mercy unto thousands of men that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord God, the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Every Sunday, rain or shine, the family would attend services at a little frame church near the railroad tracks. For me, that was a torturous ordeal. 
I looked forward to Sundays with dread. We would spend all eight hours in church. We would sit through the morning service, then the Sunday school, after which followed a break for dinner. We returned at five for the young people's Christian endeavor, and finally the evening service. It was not just boredom. Fear was the dominant emotion, especially when our preacher, Reverend Jameson, a big black man with a beautiful voice, would launch into one of the fire and brimstone sermons. It would start out slowly in a low voice, gradually rising it higher, and he would swing into a kind of sing-song rhythm, holding his congregation wrapped with vivid pictures. They would respond with, Hallelujah, ain't it the truth? Preach it, brother. He would go on in this manner for what seemed an interminable time. He would reach his peroration on a high note, winding up with a rafter-shaking burst of oratory. He would then pause dramatically amidst moans, shouts, and even screams of some of the women, one or two of whom would fall out in a dead faint, wait for them to subside. He would then, in a low, scarcely audible voice, reassure his flock that it was not too yet too late to repent and achieve salvation. All that was necessary was to repent sinners and love and obey the Lord. Amen. Someone would then rise and lead off with the appropriate spiritual, with the appropriate spiritual such as, O oh, my sins are forgiven, and my soul are set free. O oh, oh glory, hallelujah. Just let me in the kingdom when the world is all a fire. O oh, glory, hallelujah. I don't feel worried. No, no ways tired. O oh, glory, hallelujah. I remember the family Bible, a huge book, which lay on the center table in the front room. The first several pages were blank, set aside for recording the vital family statistics, births, deaths, marriages. The book was filled with graphic illustrations of biblical happenings, leafing through Genesis, which we use to biblical, which we use to call the begats. One came to Exodus, and from there on a pageant of bloodshed and violence unfolded portrayed in striking colors with the interminable tribal wars in which the Israelites slew the Mennonites and the Pharaoh's soldiers killed little children in search for Moses. There was the great God, Jehovah himself, white beard and eyes flashing, looking very much like our old uh, old cracker neighbor, Mr. Fott. Just a couple weeks before Haley's Comet appeared, Mother had taken us to see the silent film, Dante's Inferno which I had sat with my mouth with my mouth open in horror. Needless to say, this experience did not lessen my apprehension. The comet continued its descent, its tail like a flaming sword of vengeance. Collision seemed not just possible, but almost certain. What had we poor mortals done to incur such wrath of the Lord? My deportment underwent a change. I did all my chores without complaint, and helped Mama around the house. This was so unlike me that she did not know what to make of it. I overheard her telling me, telling Pa about my good behavior and how helpful I had been to come lately, but I hadn't really changed. I was just scared. I was simply trying to carry out another one of God's commandments, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Then one night the whole neighborhood gathered as unusual, as usual, on the hill to watch the comet. It appeared to have ceased its movement towards the earth. We were not sure, but the next night we were, but the next night we were certain. It had not only ceased its descent, but was definitely withdrawing. And in a couple more nights, it had disappeared. A wave of relief swept over the town. 
It's not true, I thought to myself. The fire and brimstone, the leering devils, the vengeful, go the angry, vengeful god. None of it is true. It was as if a, gr a great weight had been lifted from my mind. It was the end of my religion, although I still thought that it was the most likely a supreme being. But if a god existed, he was nothing like the god portrayed in our family Bible. I was no longer terrified of him. Later, at the age of 14 or 15, I read some lectures of Robert G. Ingersoll and became agnostic, doubting the existence of a god. From there, I, moved, I later moved to positive atheism. Two years later, a great event was the sinking of the Titanic. This was significant in Omaha because one of the Branderess brothers, owners of a large department store in North Omaha, went down with her. I kept in the customs of the blacks to gloat over the misfortunes of the whites, especially the rich ones. Some black bards composed the Titanic blues. When old J John Jacob Astor left his home, he never thought he was going to die. Titanic, fare thee well. I say, fare thee well. But the disaster was more frequently reserved for the black community. On Easter Sunday, 1913, a tornado struck North Omaha. It ripped a two-block swath through the black neighborhood, leaving death and destruction in its wake. Among the victims were a dozen or so black youths trapped in the basement below a pool hall where they had evidently been shooting craps. Mother did not fail to point out that the incident is another example of God's wrath. While I was sorry for the youths and their families, some of them were friends of Otto, the implied warning left me cold. My God-fearing days have ended with Haley's Comet. Misfortune, however, was soon to strike our immediate family. It happened that summer of 1913. My father fled town after being attacked and beaten by a gang of whites on Q Street, right outside the gate, right outside the gate of the packing plant. They told him to get out of town or they would kill him. I remember vividly the scene when father staggered through the door. Consternation gripped us at the sight. His face was swollen and bleeding, his clothes torn and in disarray. He had a frightened, haunted, hunted look in his eyes. My sister Eppa and I were alone. Mother had gone for, the, had gone for the summer to work for her employers, rich white folk, in Lake Okoboji, Iowa. What happened? We asked. He gasped out the story of how he'd been attacked and beaten. They said they were going to kill me if I didn't get out of town. We asked him who they were. He said that he recognized some of them as belonging to the Irish gang on Indian Hill, but there were also some grown men. But Pa, why would they pick on you? Why don't we call the police? That ain't gonna do no good. We just have to leave town. Papa, how can we? We own this house. We've got our friends here. If you tell them, they won't let anyone harm us. Again, the frightened look crossed his face. No, we got to go. Where? Where will we go? We'll move to, up to Minneapolis. Your uncles Watt and George are there. I'll get work there. I'm gonna telegraph your mom. I'm gonna. Co I'm going to telegraph your mother to come home now. He washed his face and then went into the bedroom and began packing his bags. The next morning, he gave Eppa some money and said, This will tide you over until Mother comes. She'll be here in a day or two. I'm going to telegraph her as soon as I get to the, depo to to the depot. I'll send for you all soon. He kissed us goodbye and left. Only when he closed the door behind him did we feel the full impact of the shot. It had happened so suddenly, our whole world had collapsed. Home and security were gone. The feeling of safety in our little haven of interracial goodwill. Our little home and security. The feeling of safety in our little haven of interracial goodwill had proven elusive. Now we were just homeless N words on the run. The cruelest blow, the cruelest blow perhaps, was the shattering of my image of father. True enough, I did not regard him as a hero. 
Still, however, I'd retain a great deal of respect for him. He was undoubtedly a very complex man, very sensitive and imaginative. He probably had never gotten over the horror of the scene of the cabin near Martin, Tennessee, where as a boy of 15, he had seen his father kill the Klansman. He distrusted and feared Ford Whites, especially the native-born and in Omaha, the Shanty Irish. Mother arrived the next day. For her, it was a real tragedy. Our home was gone and our family broken up. She had lived in Omaha for nearly a quarter of a century. She raised her family there and had built up a circle of close friends. With her regular summer job at Lake Okop Okoboji and catering parties the rest of the year, she had helped pay for our home. Now it was gone. We would be lucky if we even got a fraction of the money we had put into it, not to speak of the labor. Now she was to leave all of this. Friends and neighbors would ask why father had run away. Why had he let some poor white trash run him out of town? He had friends there. Ours was an old, respected family. He also had influential white patrons. There was Ed Cuddy of the, fa of the family that owned the packing plant where he worked. The Cuddies had become one of the nation's big three in the slaughtering and meatpacking industry. Father had known him since boyhood. There was Mr. Wilkins, the general manager of Cuddies, whose father had known this as an, as an office boy, who now gave father all of his old clothes. A few days later, Mr. Cannon, a railroad man in charge of the buff buffet car and on the Omaha and Minneapolis run, and an old friend of father, called with a message from father. He said that father... He said that father was all right, that he'd gotten a job for himself, and mother at the Minneapolis Women's Club. Father was to become a caretaker and a janitor. Mother was to cater at the small parties at the club and to assist the larger affairs. They were to live in on the place in a basement apartment. The salary was ridiculously small, I think about $60 per month, both of them. The employers insisted that only one of us children would be allowed to live in the place. That, of course, would be Epa. He said that father had arranged for me to live with another family. This, he said, would be a temporary arrangement. He was sure that he could find another job, rent a house, where we could all be together again. As for me, father suggested that since I was 15, I could find a part-time job to help out while continuing in school. Mr. Cannon said that he was to take me back to Minneapolis with him, and that mother Epa were to follow within a few days. With regards to our house, Mr. Cannon said that he knew a lawyer, an honest fellow, who, for a small commission, would handle its sale. Mother later claimed that after deducting the lawyer's commission and paying off a small mortgage, the, the only got, they only got the paltry sum of $300. That was for a five-room house with electricity and running water. The next day, Mr. Cannon took me out to his buffet, to his buffet car in the railroad yards. He put me in the pantry and told me to stay there, and if the and if the conductor looked in. Don't be afraid, he's a friend of mine. The car was then attached to a train which backed down the station to load passengers. I looked out the window as we left Omaha. I was not to see Omaha again until after World War I, when I was a waiter on the Burlington Rail Railroad. My childhood and part of my adolescence was now behind me. I feel that I was practically on my own. What did the world hold for me? A black youth. Arriving in Minneapolis, I went to my new school. As I entered the room, the all-white class was singing old, darky plantation songs. Upon seeing me, the voices seemed to take a mocking, derisive tone, loudly emphasizing the Negro dialect and staring down at me. They sang, Come down in Dick Confield, hem den darkies moan, all de darkies am a-weeping, masses in the cold, cold ground.
they were really having a ball. In my state of in increased racial awareness, this was just too much for me. I was already in a mood of desperate depression, of deep depression. With the breakup of our family and the separation from my childhood friends and the interminable quarrels between my mother and father, in which I sided with mother, I was in no mood to be kid kidded or scoffed at. That was my last day in school. I never returned. I made up my mind to drop out and get a full-time job. I was 15 and in the second semester of the 8th grade. End of chapter 1 of Black Bolshevik. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Book Club Comedy. Stay tuned, stay tuned next week where I'll once again destroy my voice and <laughs> read in chapter 2 where we'll get into the wonderful time that was World War One. I've been Ivy, and I'll catch y'all next time. Thank you.